Good morning. So our reading today is from Mark chapter 2. And we're reading the whole chapter. So Mark 2. When he entered Capernaum, again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions. Then he told them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So then, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. 
I wonder if uh, you've ever met someone who is deeply self-assured in their identity. Uh, those people are often very compelling in their convictions, aren't they? They're, they can often be those kind of visionary leaders that people flock around. Uh, it, it's that visionary CEO in the company that you know, is on the front pages of the newspapers. Or it's the head girl or head boy when you're in year seven. They seem so mature, so confident up the front, and you don't know what's going on. Or it might be the missionary who seems so confident about what he or she is doing and their deep convictions about going somewhere overseas and leaving everything here behind. Something about that self-confidence, that self-assurance, there's an authority that seems to shine forth from that, isn't there? And when you see them from a distance, they seem kind of shiny, potentially. But as you get to know them more, as you get closer to them, you realize that they've just got the same flaws and the same blind spots as you do. But imagine someone without any of those kind of deficiencies. How compelling would their authority be if they truly walked what they talked? How compelling is someone who's so deeply self-assured that they're not insecure about who they are, they know themselves and speak with a great confidence from that authority? As we get closer to Jesus in Mark 2 today, we see more of his identity revealed to us. And the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is that he is the divine son of man. There are three sections in this chapter. Uh, I'm going to go through each of these and show how all of them build to showing Jesus' authority as this divine son of man. So first, in verses 1 to 12, we see his authority over sins. Then we see in verses 13 to 22, his authority to create something new. And finally, in verses 23 to 28, we see his authority over the religious institutions. So we're going to get through, uh, get into it. We'll start with verses 1 to 12, where we see Jesus' authority over sins. Now, in the, in the narrative, we see Jesus enter Capernaum again after some days. And as he comes in, word goes out to uh, the surrounding countryside about him. Jesus was a bit like a celebrity. The crowds, they flock together. There's so many that they are bursting through the whole house. You can't even get in through the doorways. And they're all there probably to see him perform some whiz-bang miracles. But Jesus actually takes the opportunity to preach the word to them. Now, as he was preaching, I assume people started to get a bit distracted because bits of the roof started to fall on their head. There's loud noises of digging. And they look up and they see a bed starting to get lowered in the middle of this guy speaking. Now, houses at that time, they had a flat roof. So it's not, you know, as complicated as kind of getting to the roof of one of our houses. They even used to have ladders or uh, steps that they could access the roof with. 
but regardless, the, the, the four that were carrying this paralytic realized that they couldn't get through the crowd. There were just so many people in the doorways, in the house, that they just couldn't physically lift a stretcher into the house. And so they use the roof instead. Jesus sees their faith, and he sees the way they go to such great lengths to help their friend, the paralytic. And so he turns to him and says, with great tenderness, son, your sins are forgiven. Now imagine if you're that paralytic coming, expecting to be healed, and you look up Jesus and you say, it's not my sins that are the problem, it's my shins. (laughs) Now at the same time, there are these scribes, these Jewish law keepers who are there watching the whole thing happen, and they know rightly that only God can forgive sins. Who is this guy who's declaring that someone's sins are forgiven? But they wrongly charge Jesus with blasphemy. It's a wrong charge because they're going to see that Jesus is God. See, Jesus, he understands their hearts. Even though they're not talking to each other about it, they're kind of just grumbling in their hearts and their minds, he understands what they are thinking. And he says to them, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? Now, if you're a Christian, you know that actually forgiving sins is the much harder thing. Only God can forgive sins. And at the end of the gospel, spoiler alert, we know that Jesus will do that much harder thing by forgiving sins, by paying for them with his blood, by giving up his very life so that sins can be forgiven. But imagine at this point that it's a skeptical crowd. Imagine if I stood up there and said, your sins are forgiven. They just see it as empty talk, like... There's no way to prove that you can just say whatever you want and, you know, there's no way to show that that's actually happened. But if I could do something miraculous that seemed much harder for a skeptical eye, then they might take me more seriously. And so in verse 10, Jesus says, he'll show them that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins by healing the paralytic. Now, When you think of the Son of Man, you might think it's a roundabout way of just saying a human, you know, the Son of Man. I'm a Son of Man. My father was a man. Um, But it's not talking about Jesus being human. In fact, it's actually pointing to something divine. The the title Son of Man actually comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, which I'll have there in in its fullness, and it says... I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. You see, the Ancient of Days in this vision was, is God the Father. 
And the Son of Man is a divine figure who has all authority, authority over everything, authority that is everlasting. It's not a human because our authority, whatever little authority we might have, ends when we die. This person is someone who has everlasting dominion, and their kingdom is one that cannot be destroyed. When Jesus comes first on the scene, in Mark 1.15, the first things he says are, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. He is the one who's bringing in this kingdom and calling people uh, into it. And so when Jesus uses this phrase, son of man, he's, he's saying people, to people, that's me. I'm that divine figure from Daniel 7 that you are all waiting for, that you are all expecting. This whole chapter, Mark chapter 2, is just a big sign trying to tell us all that Jesus is the Son of Man, that Jesus is God. So, Jesus says the way that He's going to prove His authority is by healing this man. And He does that. He heals the man, and immediately the man obeys God, gets up, and walks out before them all. And the crowd goes wild. They are amazed and glorify God. My family is going to Seychelles next year, and one of the things that we've learned as we've researched Seychelles, that's the flag, it's a beautiful flag um, of Seychelles. One of the things we've learned as we've researched them is that Seychelles is a place where magic and witchcraft are really prevalent. And despite being 90% Christian on paper, it's not uncommon for people to go to church on Sunday and then go see the witch doctor on Wednesday for their worldly problems. They think, you know, Sunday is just for our eternal problems, but if, if I have sickness in the family, if I have other problems, I need to go get a spell or a potion from this witch doctor to solve it. I suspect that kind of mixed uh, belief, it comes from a lack of understanding of Jesus' authority. See, they don't think that Jesus has a say in their day-to-day life. They don't see that He does care for their worldly needs. They don't see the compassionate Jesus that we see here in Mark, who is walking alongside people, ministering to their needs. Jesus shows that he cares deeply for the worldly needs in healing this man, but he also cares deeply and primarily, because that's the first thing he did, he, he cares for their eternal needs. He cares for the thing that only he can give, the forgiveness of sin. You see, when we see Jesus save the sick in our world, we ought to give glory to God. But this story is not about showing that Jesus has authority over physical sickness. No, the physical healing is a sign that Jesus can actually give us spiritual healing. He can heal the spiritual sickness in each of us by forgiving us of our sin. And so every baptism, every story of a new convert Every rebel who comes back into the fold of God 
ought to be a marvelous picture of Jesus' ability to forgive sins. And when we see those things, uh, the appropriate response, when we see the Son of Man displaying this work even now, is to give God the glory, to say, we've never seen anything like this. Now, if, if someone came who had the authority that Jesus had, if someone had this divine authority of the Son of Man, and the following that Jesus had, the crowds that He kind of gathered, who would you expect them to hang out with? Probably the elite, right? The, the cream of the crop. Maybe they're, you know, similar to what Manoj was saying. They're the kind of corrupt president who gathers around the power brokers around him to create more power. But in this section, the next section, we see that Jesus is not here to perpetuate the power structures of our world. In fact, in verses 13 to 22, we see that Jesus is here to create something new. After he leaves that crowded house and shows his authority to all there, Jesus goes down to the seaside and calls a tax collector named Levi to follow him. Now, I resonate a lot with tax collectors. I used to be an accountant. You know, I love money. I love counting money. But uh, I gave up that life. And uh, there's something uh, interesting in that Jesus, he not only calls this person to follow him, he actually invites himself over to his house, has a meal with him, has a meal with tax collectors and sinners who were following him. Now, I don't know how you feel about accountants. Uh, I hope after today, only love. Uh, but in, in that time, tax collectors were considered morally bankrupt sinners. They're the kinds of people who would skim the wealth of their own people as they uh, collected taxes. And when, when it says that Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, those two things are kind of the same thing in most people's mindset. Tax collectors are as bad as the worst of sinners. Jesus is willing to hang out with them, to eat in their house. And, and the scribes that are following him well, they see Jesus doing this mixing with sinners and it makes them uncomfortable because uh, to them, even mixing with sinners might potentially infect them with sin. Jesus' response to their uh, feelings, their criticisms is such a relief to us, isn't it? Because Jesus says, he is here for the sinners, not for the righteous. That's, that's good news for every single person gathered here today because we are all sinners before God. And hopefully you haven't lost your sense of wonder that Jesus welcomes sinners. But imagine you are a religious person. Uh, that might be a stretch for some of us. Imagine you're religious, you, that you go to church every Sunday and, you know, do religious-y things. What kind of people would you be uncomfortable to see Jesus hang out with? Accountants? Mm, probably not. Let me try to make it 
uh, a little less abstract. Imagine you drove to church on Wednesday, and you know, you're just here to set up something in the hall, but you look into uh, lead pastor Mike Hasey's house, and you see that he's having lunch with bikers. You see that he's having lunch with people who have very clearly got substance abuse issues. You clearly see that he's having lunch with prostitutes and pimps. How uncomfortable are you feeling when you see that? What would it look like if those people came and sat in our service with us? Would that change the way you welcomed them? Would, would you kind of give a wider berth? If Jesus says that he came as a doctor to the sick, then our church should be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. We should be a place where everyone is welcome. And, and we, we, we say that, don't we? We talk that talk. I wonder what it would look like for us to walk that walk with those kinds of people coming into our doors, to know that the gospel is not beyond them, that the, the love of Jesus is for sinners like us uh, and that they are sinners like us. While he's talking to these scribes, some people come and question Jesus' disciples about why they don't fast like they do, like the others do. And the pious religious fasting that these guys are coming and asking them about, it is an intentional contrast to Jesus feasting compassionately with sinners. Jesus says that when you are with the bridegroom, when you are at a bridal feast, when you are at a reception, it's inappropriate to fast. It's appropriate when you're at a reception to party with the bridegroom. And Jesus is saying he is the bridegroom. He's subtly linking himself to God, who is described in the Old Testament as the bridegroom in places like Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10. Isaiah chapter 62, verses 4 to 5, and Hosea chapter 2. Jesus is linking himself to the way God is revealed in the Old Testament to see again that his authority is divine. And he uses two illustrations of, of patches on, and on clothes and on wineskins, which probably seem a little bit confusing when we first see it. But it's just talking about the same thing. He's, he's talking about the empty religious practice of the Pharisees. That's the old stuff. And he's saying that he is coming to bring something new. And the new thing that he's bringing cannot mix with the old because they are incompatible. The new thing Jesus is bringing is a genuine love for the lost and a real relationship with God through the forgiveness of sins. And that cannot mix with religious, self-righteous, hypocritical observance, which often actually is lacking in love for others. The, the temptation to mix faith with God with empty religious observance is a real thing that we will face in Seychelles. When a country is 90% Christian on paper, uh, there's a danger in society just assuming that everyone's kind of 
Christian. And, and that was kind of the problem that Australia had about 60 years ago. People believe in name only, but it didn't actually marry into their practice. And so we hope that as you partner with us, you'll continue to earnestly pray for God's help, for His Spirit to work to revive the many nominal church attendees in Seychelles. But in Australia, it seems that that's not our problem anymore. This census kind of is showing that people are more likely to not say they're Christian than they used to. But there's still a danger in our church for secularism to creep in and tempt us to mix that with religious outward forms of worship. It shows up in our temptation to action rather than prayer. It shows up in our temptation to subscribe our successes to our own merit rather than to God. It shows up in our temptation to separate what we do on Sunday, to separate our faith from our work, our study, or even our family life. The danger is that we become an empty religious institution. That's why we need to keep seeing the Son of Man afresh. This is not our weekly gathering to pat ourselves on the back for our good attendance and religiosity, but it's our opportunity to remind each other of who Jesus is and to be zealous to live for Him. The danger of empty religiosity was not just a problem back then for the Pharisees and the scribes. It's a real danger to the church. We're always in danger of just baptizing our preferences so that the good songs are the ones that we liked when we first became a Christian, and all the new songs, the modern songs, well, they're kind of bad. The danger is that we actually just grow to love and preserve our institutions, our preferences, rather than love God and preserve His Word and right worship of Him. So in the next section, Jesus comes to show that He has authority even over our religious institutions. In this section, Jesus and His disciples are confronted again by the Pharisees. We've seen in this chapter three different times where He comes into conflict with these scribes and Pharisees, with these religious leaders. And they have a problem with His disciples eating wheat from the fields. Now, what they're doing is permissible according to God's law. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, it says that you're allowed to walk through the grain fields and eat from your neighbor's grain. But the Pharisees' problem is that they're doing it on the Sabbath. You know, one of the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath holy, and uh, there, there's an encouragement not to do any work on the Sabbath. And much ink has been spilled over centuries, it's still something people wrestle over now, about what constitutes work. How do, you, how do you know if you're working on the Sabbath or not? And some extreme views suggest that you can't cook, you can't clean the house, some people, you know, are cheering at that. Uh, you can't write, you can't spend any money because all of those are a kind of work. And these Pharisees, they're following Jesus around, it seems, through this chapter, through every different place that Jesus goes to. 
They're following him around like the paparazzi, you know, trying to catch him out in a compromising position. And they think they've got him. But Jesus appeals to Scripture uh, to kind of show them why they're wrong. He recounts the story about King David, how he ate holy bread with his men when they were hungry. Now, when you look at the details of those two, uh, they don't seem exactly to parallel. These guys aren't eating holy bread. They're just eating wheat from the fields. Uh, David didn't do it on the Sabbath day. This is on the Sabbath day. What's, What's the comparison between these two situations? Well, Jesus is not actually comparing the situation He's comparing the authority of the person who is doing the action. David in that time could do what he did because he was God's Messiah, God's chosen king. The Sabbath, the Sabbath was a God-given institution. And in fact, the Sabbath was distinctly God's. It was something that God did after he created the world. On the seventh day, he rested. And the Sabbath was supposed to be a picture of that rest. So when Jesus is appealing to David's authority, he's, he's saying, I have authority over the Sabbath. I have authority over this divine institution because I have divine authority. I'm the divine son of man. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. If we truly submit to Jesus' authority and truly submit to His Lordship over our religious institutions, then we need to see that church was made for Jesus, not Jesus for the church. That Jesus is the Lord of the church. Who is Jesus? He is the divine Son of Man. In each of these scenes, the religious leaders are coming to try to confront Jesus' authority. But in each of these situations, Jesus is deeply self-aware of his identity as the Son of Man, and he speaks with an authority that is unchallengeable. Now, for most of us, we might feel some level of intellectual assent to Jesus' authority over our lives, but I think the cocktail of our sinfulness and our Australianness means that we're pretty suspicious of authority in general. And on top of that, we live in a day where we think that only what we say, what is authoritative is just the bits that work for us rather than a person who commands full obedience and authority. This chapter, Mark 2, is telling us to see Jesus more clearly. The better we see Jesus, the more rightly we are able to respond to Him. When we see that He has full authority, I think we can start letting go of our plans a bit more, of holding too tightly to the things that we want. And maybe COVID has taught us many of those lessons already. We can submit instead to submit, uh, we can seek instead to submit every aspect of our lives to the Lordship of the Son of Man, not just the bits on Sunday. Jesus cares for our daily issues. He wants to help us with those. I love that song that says, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. It's not that He doesn't help us with our griefs. Jesus wants to bear our griefs, our daily struggles. 
But the greater picture we see is that He has authority to bear all our sins. And so we can respond with the same sense of wonder in verse 12. And I invite you, I'm going to read this out, and I'll invite you to say out loud the bit in bold with me. So in Mark chapter 2, verse 12, it says, As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. 